Hey guys, Jim Cox, FFG Advisors, Park Avenue Securities, and I'm here today with an interview with Matt Hoggs. He's with, uh, he's got a company called Nonprofit Dot Courses, and he's been working with nonprofits to help them improve their situation, and it's it's really tough times in terms of with nonprofits trying to raise funds in this kind of a uh, economy, especially with uh, the finances and so forth. So, Matt, thanks for taking the time to chat today. Oh, totally glad to do it. Um, uh, thank you so much for asking. Awesome. So, tell us a little bit about yourself. What's your background, and how did you get into uh, helping nonprofits? Well, I've uh, gosh, it, like anything else, uh, uh, people do. Uh, you know, you kind of fall into it, and I did that uh, a long time ago, probably more than thirty years ago. Uh, I uh, ended a, a graduate program in geology, of all things, and uh, there were no jobs out there at the time. And uh, I had always been in Boy Scouting, and ended up working for the Boy Scouts. And uh, that led to uh, being a little more specialized. Uh, when you're a professional scouter, you work with uh, membership management and training and uh, fundraising. Uh, you don't work with the kids, actually. You work with the adults who work with the kids. And uh, then uh, my next step, I focused on fundraising. And that led to a career in um, higher education and nonprofits uh, for a while. Uh, ended up getting a, a master's degree in philanthropy and development from uh, one of the first uh, schools that offered that. And um, then about uh, 10, 12 years ago or so, I uh, opened my own consulting firm and uh, started teaching uh, in nonprofits as well. So you've been in this a long time. You've, you have a lot of experience how has it changed now for nonprofits compared to, say, 20 years ago? Well, it's interesting. Uh, I mean, like anything else, uh, technology has made a big impact. Uh, but then a lot of things have stayed the same. You know, it's still about relationships. It's still about mission first. Uh, there's a great book that uh, a fellow named Cy Seymour put out in the 1960s, I think. And, you know, if you just flip out uh, no cards with databases, you know, so much of it still applies. Mm. But uh, the uh, it, being mission focused is still the most consistent thing. It's just how you deliver that mission and how people engage that mission that's different. Gotcha. So is there something that makes one nonprofit more successful compared to another one in, in kind of the current age? Is there one thing that yeah, makes an advantage? Um, I, I think it's, um, uh, I don't know if it's a, it's a current age thing, but it's, it's definitely the successful nonprofits are the ones who are willing to uh, go, I would say, beyond their mission. And I don't mean going beyond their mission in terms of their services. You want to be able to focus and stick to your mission. So that's really important. But to say that the, that a lot of times people come in working with nonprofits and they're really great at what they do. They're the best social workers. They're the best environmentalists, whatever it is they do. But getting beyond that and being willing to uh, connect to people outside um, in terms of now social media, in terms mm. of, um, of just getting out and you know, doing the rotary circuit or, or talking to people and being real advocates. And, and the big difference today is being able to grab the tools for advocacy 
which, uh, you know, uh, are the face, Facebook and LinkedIn and, you know, the social media and other ways of, um, of connecting with people. Hmm. And, and also being able to connect uh, with donors uh, differently, too. So advocacy is is also kind of revolves around building coalitions with kind of groups that maybe a group didn't relate to previously. Is that kind of correct? Uh, yeah, that's some of it for sure. Um, and it's not just limited to other nonprofits. And you know, nonprofits are pretty good at connecting with each other, but it's connecting outside their circle. So uh, we're talking about uh, businesses that have a common interest Mm -hmm. and not being afraid of connecting with a business that has a common interest. Uh, You know, most folks um, uh, generally, but even in the nonprofit world, still don't realize that most money comes from not businesses, not foundation grants, but individuals. Mm-hmm. And uh, I mean, seventy-two percent, I think, was the last you know Giving USA figure on that. And if you in, uh, count estates, and if you count uh, businesses that are uh, uh, held by individuals, you know, like um, S corps and LLCs, and if you count uh, foundations, which are really effectively individual giving tools, uh, that number goes up into the uh, into the eighties percent. So being able to tell your story, you know, kind of marketing 101, right? Yeah. Being able to tell your story and connect with folks, but now telling it on a video instead of um, uh, in front of a group. Now uh, being able to have a, a Facebook page which draws people in, uh, you know, instead of having a booth at a, uh, at a trade show or something. Mm-hmm. Yeah, those are the ways that they need to kind of be new uh, in today's economy. So um, with your with your website, um, you basically hey. try to provide help to nonprofits in terms of kind of best practices. Is that kind of the nature of it? Yeah. I mean, I've um, been, like I said, in this uh, world for longer than I can remember. And um, one of the things uh, that I've I've really enjoyed is teaching people how to do things well in their nonprofits. And, you know, it's, it's, uh, there are a lot of things that are just, like I said before, kind of basic, but then there's a lot of new things. And there's a lot of people out there who like to do the same. And now I teach in graduate programs. I've taught, I do seminars at, you know, um, conferences and events like the Association of Fundraising Professionals and others like that. And there is totally a place for those for anybody who is engaged in the nonprofit world. However, what the website is for, what nonprofit.courses is for, by the way, .courses is just, it's one of these new TLDs, top level domains, it's just like uh, .org and .com. Uh, what it's for is, first of all, for volunteers uh, or nonprofits who aren't staffed who need to learn just how do you um, write a direct mail letter, how, uh, how do you get engaged in social media, or whatever it is, because it's, um, it's not just fundraising. There's accounting information, HR information, some insurance information, things like that. But then also for the staff member who uh, I, I just have this vision in my head of some boss uh, saying, you know, by Friday, have a planned giving program outlined for us so that we can start talking about it. And they're looking and saying, huh? Yeah, <laughs> you know? yeah. Go to nonprofit.courses, uh, look at, a, and we have, in, in this case, we have a lot of planned giving videos. You know, this is the states and trusts and things like that. And 
being able to kind of ramp up on that. Uh, or if you're a board member, if you're having a, you know, you need to train board members on specific things, or let's say your board's going to talk about how to use social media, well, somebody can identify a couple of videos on nonprofit.courses to go to, and they can come in that board meeting ramped up on what they need to know as opposed to getting educated there. Hmm. Is there a difference in terms of um, between the different generations in terms of their their um, giving uh, proclivity or how to kind of reach them in terms of providing uh, you know your message uh, to them? Yes and no. Um, I think that at some base level, folks are folks, right? You know, and people uh, are human and react to the same thing. So stories engage people really well. Uh, that, that whether you're young or old, but the media in which you use it, and actually it's not so much, yes, it's the media, but it's also the ratio of the media. So if, um, if you're going to talk to a younger audience, um, you might use more social media kind of, you know, electronic tools than say direct mail. Uh, however, um, you don't, uh, exclusively use one or the other. In other words, you can't just give up on direct mail because you're talking to millennials, say, because, uh, it turns out that when you combine media together, it's much more effective. Hmm. So, uh, you might just send the, uh, millennial a couple fewer, um, direct mail, paper mail things and a couple more, uh, Facebook posts or emails or something, right? But that, so it's more of a ratio thing because not all, first of all, not all, all old people don't, you know, uh, aren't afraid of, of social media and electronics. A lot of them, I know a lot of good, uh, uh, well adapted, uh, older people to that. And not all young people are constantly in that. And it turns out like things like direct mail is really kind of a breakthrough technology to a lot of groups. Mm. Uh, you know, think of how many letters you get in the mail and if it's, uh, and people will say, well, I don't open those. Well, you probably don't open the ones with the groups you don't care about. But if you have, if they've done their research well and they know and that you've already given to that group, number one, you're more, much more likely to open that envelope. Or if uh, they've found out that you like um, rescue animals and this is a different rescue animal shelter, your chances of opening that envelope are much higher than if it's like the Heart Association, which yeah. you don't have an affiliation with. Gotcha. Uh, so, um, uh, so yeah, it, there's, um, uh, the other thing that I think as far as generationally goes is that, uh, especially the, you know, what we used to know as the greatest generation, right? Now they're well on, um, and fading, but, uh, they were more institutional donors. Um, and as the uh, generations moved on, people became less and less tied to local hospitals or universities and, and bigger institutions and became much more fragmented in their donor patterns huh. uh, into uh, things that um, were smaller groups, a lot more community-focused groups or um, overseas aid kind of groups. Um, the other thing um, that is kind of consistent over time is that people don't uh, give necessarily, uh, like there's not a monolithic donor type. Uh, back in the 90s, uh, a book came out called The Seven Faces of Philanthropy. And it really spoke to 
uh, it was based on a study on um, on high end donors and their giving patterns. But it, I think the the numbers, while different, the concepts applied down the chain, which is that some people give because they want to help their community. Other people giving because they're devout. Um, religiously. And by the way, people who are religiously devout, doesn't matter to what religion, give more broadly in the community than people who don't have a religious affiliation. And so mm. the trends away from religiosity really impact philanthropy. Yeah. Um, then there's uh, people who are um, community, or what is it, um, uh, the altruists. They give because it's the right thing to do. Then there are the people who uh, are the uh, investors. They're the ones who, who want to see their gift leveraged somehow. They're the matching gift types. They're the ones who uh, will give 10 pounds of rice to uh, Zimbabwe because you can buy more rice at a cheaper price in Zimbabwe than you can in, uh, you know, here in the States. Huh. Um, so there's all these different kinds, and only a couple of them, like in their, in their work, uh, they were showing less than 40% were giving uh, or they had taxes as a real priority. Hmm. Uh, and, and that was fascinating because people now, not to suggest people want to take advantage of, ta- of the tax benefits of giving, but that's not the primary reason. Hmm. They are giving largely because of some other motivation, uh, some dedication to mission, and then they turn around and take advantage of the taxes as like a, a bonus or a benefit out of that. So it's possible slash probable that, you know, a nonprofit may have a campaign that, you know, it's a great campaign with great visuals, great message, but the reality is it's mismatched for a particular set of donors based on kind of their philosophical outlook. Yes, actually, you bring up an excellent point. So uh, totally right. And one of the things that a lot of nonprofits miss is um, what the business world calls target marketing. So having a, a profile, an avatar of the person or organization who is their ideal donor demographically. You know, they, they are uh, this age group, they have this level of education, they live in this place, they have this ethnicity, they have this religion or whatever. And to come up with whatever describes not necessarily their donor that they want, their, their aspirational donor, although that's fine too, but the donors who are giving to them now or that really have a high propensity to give. And that means going back and looking at who's already given to them before. And I've actually seen some, there's a group here in Philadelphia I worked with who thought that uh, like the uh, old city Northern Liberties kind of people were giving to their organization and that's who they were targeting. It turned out, no, it was young mothers from the main line. Hmm. That, that was their, that when they looked at their database, they were targeting the wrong group because they, it was just the, I think that was their aspirational donor yeah. were these folks in uh, the others. And, and the, when they looked and saw who was really giving, it was a whole different kind of demographic. Uh, and, and knowing that makes a big difference. And actually then once you know that you're able to spot it, yeah. it's like, um, you know, what kind of car do you drive? And you say, well, if you drive a VW Beetle, you see more Beetles out there because your yeah. brain is kind of tuned into that. Well, it's the same thing with donors. Wow. That's, uh, that's awesome advice. So how would you, let's say, for example, going back to that same example, how then okay. would you reach out to that local group um, of 
aspirational donors when you don't currently have them as a your primary donor base then? Like, how do you make well, you those start, inroads? Well, you, you start talking to them. You start building relationships and learning about what's important to them. And then start uh, uh, putting out your material that, that is not... Um, because there's this line here between, you know, you don't want to be untrue to your mission, right? No, you want no. to be able to, to talk about your mission appropriately, uh, but you want to put it in terms of how your donors, the people that are giving, and you want to encourage others like them to give, can relate to that mission. Uh, and it really depends. This is an environmental organization, so uh, they might uh, emphasize less um, urban um, uh, trash or something and more uh, parks uh, that are uh, child friendly mm-hmm. say I'm not just making that up but um, uh, that to be able to speak to the concerns of that group as it relates to what your mission is that's the most important thing and you got to talk to them you got to get to know them um, it's not just an academic online research kind of exercise you actually have to have engaged conversations and um find out you know what's important to them is it better from a uh, kind of an outreach standpoint to kind of address or bring up um concerns or to show benefits in other words to kind of mm. um kind of disturb the donor to take action or to kind of reinforce positive behavior um to encourage more action? I guess the answer is yes. (laughs) Well, first of all, one of the answers there is is you never want to raise from, um, like, we're poor, you need to help us. Yeah. Uh, that just doesn't work, right? People don't respond to that. Now, so far as going, do you show really, you know, awful pictures or really, you know, nice pictures? Um, I think you, what you want to do is show change, is show how you can move from a problem and make it better. So um, interestingly, one of my classes had this discussion with some Africans who were taking my class. And uh, it turned out that the Americans were really very cautious about showing some of the problems of um, African nations directly, you know, or the things that they were dealing with in African nations, because they're all like, kind of have this monolithic view of it. Uh, but uh, the Africans actually were saying, no, 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 we want to show the problems because the problems are important to us, mm-hmm. <laughs> which totally flipped the script on it. Uh, but um, no, to be able to say that, uh, that first of all, the, not, the person donating can be the hero and that they can uh, make a difference and that somebody is in a bad situation or was, and because of this uh, work that our, that our mission addresses, we were able to move them from point A to point Z and that we've turned, you know, they've turned around. Yeah. Uh, that's good. Uh, you just, because there's also, you know, it's important to keep in mind the dignity and respect of the people that you are serving. Yeah. Uh, and, and always have that um, uh, up front that, you know, people are, they're giving permission to be shown, that, they're, um, that their stories are true, uh, which, you know, funny, true stories actually work and work better, um, and, and that um, people, uh, uh, that they feel like they're part of contributing. 
Uh, not everybody who is a, uh, a mission recipient, as I call them, uh, is, is appropriate to show or uh, or wants to have their story told. But, um, well, just, um, in fact, uh, uh, there's a piece going out that I um, was working on for a, a client uh, that um, they gave me somebody who benefited from their mission who wanted to tell her story because she knew it was going to be so helpful because she got so much benefit out of what they did and she wanted other people to know. Nice. Nice. So, yeah. And so people, that that's their way of giving back for a lot of folks. But you have to respect, you know, that they, uh, they want to do this and um, treat them like mature adults that they are, that they would be able to give permission. Yeah. No, I mean, you have to meet people where they are. So... That's yeah. awesome. Yeah, exactly. Um, is there, what's the impact in terms of kind of where tax law has been changing over the past few years in terms of gifts to organizations? Does tax policy in terms of deductions or, you know, raising the inheritance tax uh, limits does that affect nonprofits in terms of with what they're able to raise? Yeah, it does. Um, ironically, you know, the higher tax rate days or years are the years that um, uh, nonprofits see more benefit <laughs> because yeah. uh, of that uh, advantage deduction. Um, you see a lot more of um, a clumping, a grouping of gifts, you know, where people will front load gifts. Uh, in certain tax years, uh, in donor advised funds, uh, especially you'll see that, and then they'll uh, parse it out slowly over time uh, after they you know get a, a significant deduction one year versus another. You're starting to see more of that. Uh, well, donor advised funds themselves are becoming uh, much more prevalent as kind of the uh, uh, <laughs> I won't say the, the poor man's foundation, but a, a better way of um, uh, that, that's more efficient than a uh, independent foundation uh, at to a certain point. I think that's uh, uh, that's great, and um, and and then but for the nonprofits, donor advice funds offer some pitfalls too because it's easy to um, uh, for the donors not to identify themselves through that, and and you know nonprofits sincerely want to say thank you and and want to connect with the donor and show them what their work is doing and uh, donor advice funds will some, sometimes obfuscate that hmm. uh, but um, no it's um, uh, I'll tell you year to year uh, the, this, this survey that happens every year called Giving USA uh, put out now by Indiana University um, in um, uh, Indianapolis is uh, shows us that there's kind of a range of like one and a half to two percent GDP every year, like the, the giving kind of falls in that kind of bracket consistently. Hmm. Um, uh, different uh, uh, tax policies will bump it one way or another. Um, sometimes a, a, a significant, um, I don't even want to say fortuitous, but uh, somebody's passing uh, who uh, has uh, a, a significant wealth that will bump it. A little bit, you know, you'd be surprised. Uh, for certain people in our economy, we'll be able to move that needle a little bit uh, individually. Um, the um, uh, and then, you know, like you said, the um, the quests are fascinating because, I mean, for the most part, the average American 
is my under always and you probably know this better than I do isn't necessarily impacted by uh, estate taxes you know that those numbers have, have gone up or changed yeah. and so um, uh, yet the estate giving is pretty consistent um, uh, besides those you know aberrations of the, the hyper wealthy uh, yeah. kind of estate uh, so um, uh, and that's that's good, but the bad news in that is that more people don't know that they can make charitable gifts through their estates to nonprofits. Um, and actually, the place that that really I think uh, folks would see a lot of benefit from that is in community foundations. Mm. So if they if they love a nonprofit, but it's a small group, they're not sure it's going to be around forever or something. You can give uh, money to your community foundation in your estate to set up a fund that will benefit that nonprofit today, but with the proviso, if that nonprofit goes away, uh, it'll go to that same purpose for other nonprofits as time goes on. Hmm. And that's a really nice backstop for um, uh, people who like a smaller group and want to make sure that uh, their purpose continues on. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I mean, the reality is, uh, I think the figure's like $30 trillion over the next 10 to 20 years is going to change hands as a result of, you know, the passing of baby boomers. So, I mean, it's a huge generational transfer of wealth that's going to take place. And, you know, obviously it's, you know, especially going to have an impact, I have to imagine, in terms of the nonprofit world. Um, yeah, well, uh, assuming that people will do that, and you know, and you know, like I do, a lot of people listening, that you know, most people don't have wills, and the ones that, and the people who have wills, most of them don't include a charity. Yeah. Uh, but they could, and yeah. really easily, and yeah. without um, you know a lot of problem. And they don't even have to. I mean, the charity would love if they told them, but you don't have to do that. You know. No, definitely, and. Uh, you know, a good way to really create that leverage is also using life insurance. I mean, people have life insurance policies oh. that, you know, provide beneficiaries. You can name non a nonprofit or a a cause to be your beneficiary. So, exactly. Actually, one of the things that um, uh, is a nice uh, called light L I T E way of getting into that is just doing something uh, where your employer um, uh, life insurance policy, if you have one. Yeah. You know, then. Uh, kind of a uh, an easy entryway into that and then you know doing other things as you move forward um if somebody were interested in kind of becoming more charitable and and setting up a, a non-profit what what are some first steps to set up a non-profit like how how easy or slash difficult is it to set up a non-profit well, it's interesting. Setting up a nonprofit is, it has a lot of the same steps like you just do setting up a business, right? It all starts with the state incorporation. And you incorporate just like any other business does, except when you pick, uh, I think everything starts as a C Corp, if I'm not mistaken, at least in Pennsylvania. And um, then you elect to be something else, and then you elect to be a nonprofit. But that just covers you in the state in which you are incorporating. Then after you go through that, then uh, comes the, uh, the the national, you know, the federal C3 designation. So you really aren't prepared to accept donations uh, w- until you get that C3 designation. How long does it usually take to, to get that kind of a donation or a 
designation? Uh, yeah, you know, you know, it's interesting. It's um, it's gotten uh, a little longer lately. I think it, for a while it was, well, so things have changed. For a while ago it was like, oh yeah, it just happened. And then things got kind of squirrely and uh, with all the, a lot of other things going on. Um, and there was a huge backlog and it took like months. Now I'm hearing that it's taking less time uh, than it did in the worst times. So, gosh, I don't know, it's hard for me to put a number on it, but, you know, you should have everything nailed down in like six months, um, probably like three months or so. I know that organizations, the ones that have the most difficulty are the ones that deal with overseas work. Mm. Uh, and and the, uh, there's a lot of um, awareness uh, among um, the IRS and others, uh, Treasury Department and all that, of uh, funneling money to yeah. bad causes yeah. overseas. Yeah. And uh, nonprofits, unfortunately, were used as that conduit for a long time. Uh, I mean, we're talking, this isn't a new phenomenon. I mean, go back to the troubles and go back to, you know, things before that in other parts of the world. Uh, and yet, um, uh, so if you have a, a nonprofit who is dealing with overseas stuff, expect a higher level of scrutiny, I think. No, definitely. Um, Money laundering is a, yeah. is a huge issue. So. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Uh, but that said, it's totally possible. Um, my other thing, though, is that, you know, a lot of people, I think just about any nonprofit I know was started for emotional reasons. Yeah. Um, and... I would encourage folks to take a step back and uh, first of all, to, to really ask yourself, why am I doing this? But then also to, uh, like I, I tell folks and uh, years and years ago, I, I, I lived and worked in Ohio and had a chance one time to hear Dave Thomas. And I think, uh, and I'm pretty sure this is what he said. Don't exactly quote me. Is that basically he, he opened Wendy's after working at McDonald's. And the point is that, you know, first of all, other people probably do what you want to do. So just like a business, what is going to be unique to you? Um, I was talking to somebody the other day, and uh, she was running into a lot of this. She was in the Bay Area uh, at San Francisco and saying a lot of people who have started like tech companies say, uh, well, I want to start a nonprofit to help children. And, you know, they're a technologist. And if somebody came to their technology company and said, I want to build, um, you know, microchips, and they have no background in that, yeah. you get laughed at. Yeah. And yeah. yet they're going and turning around and saying, I want to help children that have no background in that. So yeah. educate yourself either through working with or through another organization to start. Um, make sure you know exactly what your mission is going to be. Become an expert in that. Uh, I think the worst thing to do is to become well-intended as opposed to expert. Yeah. Uh, folks can sniff out well-intended a mile away, and that's just going to really kill you. But if you're in terms of funding, in terms of people taking you seriously, but if you become an expert, now folks will wake up and say, oh, well, you know, you're, they're, they're doing the right thing. They're on the right path. Let's put some money behind them. Yeah, and in a sense, uh, why recreate the wheel? I mean, if there's already an infrastructure mm -hmm. in place to deal with issues that help kids of a certain segment, you know, why right. try to go through all the trouble they went through for the first 20 years yourself? So Yeah, exactly. You yeah. know, and there has to be something unique to what you do, just like in a business, there has to be something unique, whether it's geographic, whether it's programmatic, whether, you know, whatever it is that um, uh, you have to serve a niche just like anything else.
You know, one of the uh, one of the challenges that I've seen, and I've I've worked, I've been on the boards of a couple of nonprofits, and um, um, one of the challenges I've seen is that within organizations is um, kind of a a sense of us being siloed, where they do not want to work with other organizations in the same space, which. On one hand, I guess makes perfect sense because you're trying to protect your own turf, but on the other hand, it's kind of frustrating because you would think that more voices would have more of an impact. You know, what's your what's your sense of that? Yeah, you're totally on spot with that. And I'll tell you that, that you know, it, um, I, I had a pastor years ago told me, used to tell this joke, and I do not, I, I'll just give you the express a bad version of it, which is basically these two pastors meet in the airport, they find out they are exactly the same thing, except one preaches from a plastic pulpit, and the other one preaches from a wood pulpit, and they suddenly dis- declare each other heretics. You know? <laughs> 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 and believe me, he told them much better than I did. But, uh, but the, the point is that, that non-profits have a, uh, a, a point of view uh, that, that they that a lot of people in that organization feel like is is very unique, but really may not be unique. Yeah. And uh, and it and unlike businesses, there is much less incentive to combine efforts either formally or informally. Yeah. Uh, there's no golden parachute for the two nonprofit. You know, when you merge two nonprofits and the, one of the executives leaves because they lost their job, it's actually a net loss sometimes instead of a win-win. Yeah. Um, and that and things like that hold, hold back nonprofits. Uh, one of the things that I was just like, um, I, I can't think of the name of the uh, of what the mer- what the group was, but uh, you know, your Toyota Corolla, your Geo Prisons years ago were built on the, in the exact same factory in Fremont, California. It was a uh, uh, between um, Toyota and GM. Right. Mm-hmm. And just different badges on these things. Well, they incorporated a separate entity to do this. You don't find nonprofits coming together and incorporating a separate joint nonprofit. And part of that is because nonprofits can't be owned. They can own other entities, but you can't own a nonprofit. And the logistics of doing that is much more difficult. So usually what happens when when somebody forces them to cooperate is that basically one of them becomes the financial conduit and the other one doesn't. And the one that doesn't feels like they're getting the short end of the stick. Yeah. So it's – it, it, it's not only culturally, but it's logistically a, 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 an issue for them to get together. Um, and so as a result, you know, it's, it's just easier for them to go on and do their own thing and, uh, and sometimes struggle uh, than to um, kind of wake up to the potential of cooperation. Yeah, uh, that's, uh, that's good insight. Um, you know, this has been uh, really enlightening. Um, Matt, if uh, somebody wants to learn more, how can they reach out to you and uh, and connect to you? Well, um, really easy for nonprofit.courses is the website. Uh, turned out that .courses is a little hard. Uh, you know, when you send out emails from that, the world isn't used to it. So I use uh, Matt Hug, M-A-T-T-H-U-G-G, at nonprofitedu.com. Um uh, this is a, uh, a web, uh, an email address, uh, and you're welcome to send to that or uh, Matt M A T T at Matt Hug 
M-A-T-T-H-U-G-G.com is fine, too. Awesome. Hey, bud, thanks for taking the time to uh, chat today. It's uh, I know it's it's Good Friday, a good day to uh, kind of talk about helping out and making a difference in the world. So thanks for taking hey. the time. Well, thank you so much for inviting me. I really enjoyed it. You, you asked some really great questions. Thank you. Thanks a lot, Matt. I'll talk to you in a little bit. Mm-hmm.